You're listening to the Story Embers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to guiding and inspiring Christian storytellers to glorify God with excellent craftsmanship. I'm your host, James Nola, and welcome to episode 68, writing stories that celebrate wholeness and human flourishing. Today's episode is sponsored by author Amanda Dykes, spinner of hope-filled tales who spends most days chasing wonder and words with her family, and also the winner of the 2020 Christie Book of the Year Award. Stay tuned to find out more about Amanda's latest book during the episode. Welcome everyone to today's episode on the Story Embers podcast. I'm your host, James Nola. I'm Josiah DeGraff. I'm Gabrielle Pollock. And I'm Des Lamb. And today we're talking about the topic, writing stories that celebrate wholeness and human flourishing. When Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, he created a society of people living together in community, whole and flourishing and largely beyond any influence of darkness. Within the community of the Shire, the home of the Hobbits, we catch this glimpse of what a whole and life-filled community looks like. As Christian writers, we not only believe that wholeness and completeness is possible through Jesus Christ ever-increasing in us here on earth and finding its fullness when we reach heaven, but we also believe that our work is an opportunity to give others the hope that becoming whole and to flourish is possible, and to point them towards the love that Jesus teaches us as the source of this flourishing life. So, as writers, we show in our stories rather than telling, and this showing, not telling, is a key part of storytelling, and therefore showing what wholeness and human flourishing looks like is one way to give hope that it is possible to be whole and to flourish. So today we're discussing what ways might we as writers engage with depicting wholeness and human flourishing, and how does that translate to giving others the gospel of Jesus Christ? My first question for you guys today on the panel, how can we better understand human flourishing before we write about it so that we can depict those kinds of communities more naturally and more powerfully? One of my favorite ways to learn about what flourishing looks like is simply by listening, Um, because I don't have that many original ideas myself, but I love listening to people who are much smarter than I am or who just have different perspectives that help me to think about life. And at least for me, a lot of the times it happens over the course of conversations with fellow believers. I think of last week I was in my church's small group and the topic of speaking the truth in love came up. And people are talking both about what does it really mean and 
What are some of the different ways in which we've kind of seen that term uh, abused or thrown around or just used as an empty platitude in a way that isn't really accurately describing what the Bible is calling us to? And that conversation sparked a whole lot of thoughts in my head about what does good communication really look like? You know, which is a part of what does it mean to flourish as a human being? And, you know, if we hadn't been studying Ephesians together and talking about it together, I don't think I would have immediately thought with as much depth or with as much complexity just from Ephesians 4 as I was forced to by the other people I was talking with. And so I think that having fellow believers that we're talking about life with whether we're talking about the big things or the small things, at least for me, has been one of the best ways in which you know, I've been led to think more about what does real human flourishing look like, you know, in ways that eventually uh, will, you know, somewhere down the line trickle down into my stories and what I'm depicting as the good life. I think for me, studying healthy communities is something that happens unintentionally without me understanding that it's happening. But one of the ways in which you can take your experiences and kind of draw on them to find what a good community looks like is often through contrast. There are a lot of examples of great community, but there are also a lot of examples of terrible relationships. And so discovering and picking apart what makes a healthy community or a healthy relationship or a healthy communication sometimes can be easier when you have a bad example to contrast it with. That's very true. I definitely know that as well. There have been a lot of times in my life where it's been similar to that, Gabby, where it was being a part of a really unhealthy situation that taught me a lot about what healthy situations look like. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good point about why this topic is so important. Because so much of the world is in so much darkness and pain and doesn't even realize it sometimes. So showing human flourishing, especially from a Christian perspective, can be like a splash of cold water in the face and, and very refreshing and eye-opening. I think for me, what catches my attention and makes me appreciate the elements of human flourishing is when it's shown through the lens of grace, especially in the small things. It can be even a sunset. You don't have to be wealthy or in a good position in life to have a sunset. It's, it's there for everybody. And that's actually one of the, the reasons it's a sign of grace is, is how free and available it is. And there can be other things. A child, it can be just the fact that there's good in the world. Some theologians refer to the problem of good. Why, if people are bad, is there good in the world? And it can be the smell of rain, things like that. Just friends. So many small things that we take for granted. And when a writer can marinate in those things to show us that they aren't ordinary, that they're sublime, and that they're not 
natural that they are that they come from God, whether they say comes from God or not. But if if in their head, that's what they're thinking, and they're trying to show that there is something divine about this grace, that feels it feels like the the feeling you get on a on a really good Thanksgiving meal, you know, when you're just thankful and and blessed and full <laughs> to the top of your belly, and things may be going poorly in many ways, but this is this is a moment where you're on the top of the mountain and looking over everything around you. I don't know how how much that makes sense or how helpful that is, but that's the feeling that catches my attention. I like that, Deus. I like that a lot. Yeah, I I love that, particularly the reminder that part of what a flourishing life, you know, looks like is in the small things of the world and of our experiences. You know, when you were talking about the the joy of just listening to the rainfall and smelling the rain. You know, it reminded me that like we actually have a word in the English language just to describe the smell of rain. It's called petrichor, and petrichor refers to just that that smell of you know fresh rain on the earth. And I think the fact that we have a word for that very specific phenomenon is a sign to how much those little things matter. And it's awesome that we can invent words that describe those kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. Being able as a person to appreciate beauty in all of its sizes is epically important to depicting healthy communities and being a healthy person yourself. Also, Petrichor sounds like the name of a dinosaur, like an emo dinosaur, and I am fully behind using that word in everyday conversation. It can become your milk toast, Gabby. It can. I have my own personal milk toast now. For the benefit of listeners, one of the inside jokes in the story Ember staff for a few years in running at this point is how much I love the word milk toast and use it every opportunity that I get. So there's your your little behind the scenes uh, look at what we really discuss at Story Embers. Deus, we're going to have to get you a word one of these days. You too, James. Mm-hmm. Yes, maybe we'll have to have a vote on it. Well, if we're doing a vote, I'm going to have to choose like some like really challenging word for you because I don't want to make it too easy for you to use it all the time. I, I agree. I feel like it should sound both extremely sophisticated and awkward to say. Slightly pretentious, too, I think. Yeah, th- that's pretty much my personality is pretentious not and, <laughs> and, and excited at the same time. <laughs> you said it, not us. Yes. Though also, you did just have the most beautiful description of appreciating beauty. So, I mean, you kind of deserve it. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay tuned. Today on the podcast, we're featuring Amanda Dyke's latest historical mystery, All the Lost Places. Here's a peek at this riveting Venetian tale. When all of Venice is unmasked, one man's identity remains a mystery. 1807. 
when a baby is discovered floating in a basket along the quiet canals of Venice, a guild of artisans takes him in and raises him as a son, skilled in each of their trades. Although the boy, Sebastian Trovato, has wrestled with questions of his origins, it isn't until a woman washes ashore on his lagoon island that answers begin to emerge. In hunting down his story, Sebastian must make a choice that could alter not just his own future, but also that of the beloved floating city. 1904 Daniel Goodman is given a fresh start in life as the century turns. Hoping to redeem a past laden with regrets, he is sent on an assignment from California to Venice to procure and translate a rare book. There, he discovers a city of colliding hope and decay, much like his own life, and a mystery wrapped in the pages of that filigree-covered volume. With the help of Vittoria, a bookshop keeper, Daniel finds himself in a web of shadows, secrets and discoveries, carefully kept within the stones and canals of the ancient city, and in the mystery of the man whose story the book does not finish, Sebastian Trovato. Purchase your copy of All the Lost Places by Amanda Dykes at amandadykes.com forward slash my books. Let's talk a little bit about the function of showing wholeness and human flourishing within our stories and why it's important to depict that specifically within our modern culture today. I resent Deus because he stole my answer, and I will never forgive him for it. He was basically saying that because our world is so steeped in darkness, it takes that darkness to be normal. It's like living in a room all your life and not realizing that you had windows because they were covered by bookshelves. And then our responsibility as we depict healthy communities, is to take away those obstacles so the light can flood in and people can realize that the way they've been living is not normal at all. Mm. You know, one of the things I've realized as just an adult and getting more experience out in the world is how much things I take for granted as a Christian who's grown up with a fairly healthy family and healthy experiences and friendships and such, is the things I think are normal, people don't have any category for to a large degree and they they don't see or or know some of the beauty of the way god has us do things the the joys that come from love and and responsibility and hope and some of those things that only come from the hard work that those who've taught us have laid down for us so Showing a little bit of that could could be extremely shocking for some people. And one of the things I think about on that front is how easy it can be if we're not thinking intentionally about this to just float along with the waves of the culture in this regard. Yeah, there was, with one of my previous novels, 
some feedback that I got from a beta reader that really made me stop and think. And you know, the, the reader had been reading the story and, you know, as she was explaining some of her comments and some of her suggestions, she made a, you know, she, she made the point, she's like, you know, so much of this novel, the protagonist is having to deal with all these different challenges. And there are all these bad things that are happening to him, which is accurate. That's how I was designing it, you know, that the protagonist faces a lot of obstacles. There's a lot of challenges because of the fact that, you know, I wanted to increase the suspense, the tension of the story, make it a riveting read. One of the things that she asked is, you know, what is he fighting to preserve? I see so many of the bad things that exist in the world that he's trying to stop. I know what he's fighting against, but what's he fighting for? And are there ways that you could show us what are the good things of this world that he's fighting to preserve? And that really made me stop and think, because as I considered that, I realized, you know, that isn't really present in the story, but it ought to be, you know, to go back to the example that you opened this episode with James about the Shire. I think that's one of the reasons why we love Tolkien is because he paints such a vivid depiction the beginning of the story about what his characters are are trying to preserve. And so that feedback from the beta reader has affected me for the things that I write have written since. You know, it's easy for me to just get caught up in, you know, how can I just make everything worse for the protagonist and all the bad things that are happening to him. But I think it's also just as important as, you know, we're not just asking what are the bad things that can happen to the protagonist, but what are those rays of light and home going to look like, and how can we show what we're seeking to preserve just as powerfully as the evil forces we're going up against. That is such a practical way of how to show wholeness in your novel, and I very much appreciated that. Thank you, Josiah. That's cool. So I have a question for you both. There's a theological take or just emotional perspective that a lot of Christians have that I think can keep us from showing human flourishing the way we could. And that's what I would call this escape to heaven ideology, which is especially seen in Christians who are really going through a lot of suffering and understandably just really long for heaven. And that's a good thing. But in the perspectives I see from them in real life and in some of the stories that are like that, it gives a very, very dim picture of life here on earth. And then you'll see this moments of this ethereal, almost untouchable goodness that is just wonderful, but far away that comes from a sudden new catastrophe comes from a character actually dying, going to heaven or some sort of spiritual encounter that's very unlooked for. And there's a super sharp contrast between darkness and this one moment of light. And that can be very powerful but thinking through my experience with stories, I think that often the smaller moments of grace and points where something unexpected and fairly normal happens that's good and wonderful and, and shows God's character often impacts me more. Do you, do you find that that's the case or is that just me? Can you give like a specific example? Yeah, let me think here. Um, Maybe one will come to me from a story as I'm talking, but an idea I've been thinking about for a while is some scene I want to write eventually where a character 
is just really shaken by God being good to them and something turning out right. And them, you know, having really had to surrender and go through a lot of pain and, and learning to deal with the hard blows that God gives us in our lives. And then suddenly realizing that that isn't the summation of God's character, that he also just loves to bless us. And, you know, it could be something like a character who is sick actually gets healed and is doing better. And that has been really tugging on my emotions, a scene like that. And I also think scenes of just appreciating nature very deeply impact me a lot. Other examples. Oh, um, definitely things like friendship. And just seeing God's character displayed by real humans and it not being all darkness and betrayal. You know, characters like Sam from The Lord of the Rings, if we're sticking with that theme, he's a great example. Just his undying loyalty and self-sacrifice. That's bigger in some ways than characters like Gandalf and Aragorn and some of those bigger, stronger characters. Even even more than like the, the Valar, if you're familiar with some of the lore, the, the actual angels, gods from Middle-earth, the people who are holier and, and mightier, but seem kind of far away. Mm. I do like that one line that you said. You said something about how stories that only show help from a very distant, unreachable place don't necessarily show the summation of God's character. I do think we are called to write different stories as authors. We were just talking about in the previous episode how we are all different parts of the same body. So some authors might be called to dwell a little bit more on the fulfilled, healthy community, and some authors might be called to sit with someone in the darkness. So it kind of depends on where God's leading you as an author. But I do think it is the contrast of the small good things in the midst of overwhelming darkness that make me personally long for heaven and redemption and when the earth will be made new. The Book Thief is a really big one for me in that area, and so is A Monster Calls. They're pretty dark books, but the small goodness in them is really powerful because of that contrast. There are two examples that came to my mind as I've been thinking about small acts of goodness. Uh, The first is in one of my favorite classical novels, or not a novel, actually, uh, classical stories, which is the Iliad by Homer, which ends with uh, Achilles and Priam, these mortal enemies, sitting down at a tent in the middle of negotiations and just weeping together because they can look at each other and realize that each of them has lost so much in this world. And there's this deep temporary unity that they feel in the fact that they can both look at their fierce enemies and see a good bit of themselves in them. And you know, it's a small moment because it's not going to end the war. The next day, they're going to go back to fighting and killing each other. But that small moment is just so, so powerful and has brought tears to my eyes when reading it because of how poignant it is. You know, as a bit more of a modern example, I think about uh, a line from Batman at the end of The Dark Knight Rises when he's talking to Commissioner Gordon, 
during the climax and he's trying to explain some things about heroism um and he says to commissioner gordon a hero can be anyone even a man doing something as simple and reassuring as putting a coat around a little boy's shoulders to let him know that the world hasn't ended and we get the flashback there to Commissioner Gordon comforting a young Bruce Wayne after his parents were murdered by just putting a coat around him and just being there for him in that gentle moment. You know, and there's something about that poignant moment that's more powerful than seeing Batman saving the city from the atom bomb. And I think part of it is that you know, most of us, we aren't in situations where we're saving the world from an atom bomb. You know, we can, there's a certain amount of thrill that we feel about it, but there's a bit less relatability, but just sitting next to and comforting someone. Well, that is a deeply relatable moment. Uh, but Speak how do you know yourself, that? Speak for yourself, Josiah, about yeah. that atom bomb. I was going to, you and me both days. <laughs> Well, let, let me take it back. Most of us normal plebeians don't have experience <laughs> from atom bombs, but I will say nothing about what either of you are doing in your secret lives. Thank you didn't you. know Thank that you. we're secret superheroes. <laughs> I know, but I was trying not to out you guys in the Story Embers podcast, you know, but Gabby, you're going to out yourselves. Don't stop me. Gabby's basically like Catwoman. I agree with this. I definitely do. This is true. This is correct. But please, if there is a bomb in your area, don't call me. I was originally going to comment that I love that Josiah decided to use the Iliad and then Batman. I think that is fantastic. Some of the best stories out there. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Do you have a question or topic you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast? Email info at storyembers.org to let us know. And as always, special thanks to our Patreon supporters, Taylor Clarkson, Michael Stanton, and Renee Kennedy. And finally, join us again on January 15th as we discuss the topic, how to become a servant-hearted writer, on the next episode of the Story Embers podcast.